We went on vacation last week, had a great, great trip. We were in Hot Springs, Arkansas, okay? And so uh, we were trying to make this trip magical for our little boys. And um, so at one point, we went to a crystal mine to mine for crystals, okay? And so this is a real operating crystal mine, and you pull up to this place, and they've got this kind of storefront that you come in and pay your, for your tickets to go out and dig in the dirt. And um, you pull up, and literally outside the door is a crystal they have found there that is bigger than my car. It's huge, okay? And so we pull up to this crystal mine. We've been telling the boys we're going to go dig for crystals, and the first crystal they see is the size of a car. <laughs> we go inside, and very strategically in this little storefront, it is filled with the most brilliant, glorious crystals they have ever found there. And probably some they have ordered from overseas, okay? They're huge, right? And my kids' eyes are just so big, okay? You go up to the counter and you give them a kidney so that you can go dig in their dirt, right? It's a fortune to do it. I'm sitting there, I'm like, what tools are we supposed to use? Like, do you have this stuff that we're supposed to use? And he says, yeah, for a small fee, you can buy this. And he says, I promise, this is everything you need. And so I buy a couple of these and I'm looking at them thinking like, I don't know if this is everything we need. But we go out to the dirt and we're digging in the dirt. It's hot and it's sunny and we're digging in the dirt. And we found a couple like little small crystals. But at one point, a guy on this huge excavator, huge excavator, all morning bulldozers have been passing us, dump trucks have been passing us full of rock and rubble that they're taking to these big things that shake and separate the sifters that separate the diamonds and crystals from the rock. And this big excavator, the size of my house comes by and the guy driving the excavator gives me a little nod and a finger as if to say, you and I, brother, we're doing the same thing. And I thought, we are not doing anything close to the same thing. And I'll, I'll be very honest. If you're thinking about going there and digging for crystals with your kids, my kids left very disappointed. And it was one of those moments where I looked at his big old excavator compared to my little, you know, garden spade thing. I felt like I did not have what I needed. You ever felt that way? You know, this situation is going on in your life and you just feel like, I don't have what I need for this. I just don't have what I need. And I think in some ways, that's the feeling. I need to stop swinging this, y'all. I'm gonna lose it. That's the feeling behind Acts chapter 19. Humans haunted by the feeling that they don't have what they need. They don't have specifically the power that they need to actually change things in their lives, okay? Come with me to Acts chapter 19. Here's what I wanna do. Acts chapter 19, over the next two weeks, so today and the next week, we're gonna to try to cover the whole chapters. And I'm gonna throw it up here on the screen. There's six stories in this, in this chapter, in chapter 19. We're gonna do the first three today, the second three next week. My sense is that the six stories are tied together by this idea of power. 
of not having what we need versus having exactly what we need. <clears throat> so the six stories here, the first story is a, is a baptism. Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus. He comes across some guys who have been baptized, but only kind of. He realizes they're missing something. I'm going to explain that in a second. He baptizes those guys. The next, and that's chapter, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And this would be a good morning. If you have your Bible, you want to leave it open on your lap to kind of see the lay of the land, it would be a good one. Or if you have a device and you want to look at it, you can. That's Acts chapter 19, 1 through 7, the baptism. And then starting in verse 8, you have the start of a sermon. And really, it's a bunch of sermons. But Paul starts to preach a bunch of sermons in Ephesus. And I'm going to come back to what happens through that preaching in just a moment. But that leads, starting in verse 11, to this very odd story about a handkerchief that you probably did not even know is in the Bible. Okay, we're going to look at that. We're trying to make sense of it. And then you come from Acts chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, come down to verse 13, and you have this story of a fight. It's a fight between a guy who's possessed by demons and seven other guys. And the guy possessed by demons wins the fight. That leads you down to verse 17 where you have a fire, a book burning, like Fahrenheit 451 vibes. Okay, so we're going to talk about that next week, a book burning, a fire there. And then starting in verse 23, we get a riot. And that riot takes us to the end of the chapter, verse 41. We're going to look at the, the second set of three there next week, the fight, fire, and riot. We're going to look at that next week. This morning, we're going to look at the baptism, the sermon, and the handkerchief. Now, here's what I want to share with you about these six stories before we take them down from the screen. The, all six are taking place in Ephesus, and that's really important. Ephesus was this huge, ancient, important city. And in some ways, Ephesus, almost unlike any other city in the ancient world, was dominated by the feeling, we don't have what we need. And so at the center of Ephesus was a great temple to the god Artemis. And out of that temple flowed a whole industry that sold magic, sorcery, and promised power. Okay, so specifically, it's promising people who feel they don't have what they need the power to get it. All right, that's Ephesus. Okay, now let me pause here before we jump into the baptism story. We're going to talk about power this morning, and I want to acknowledge that it seems to me like maybe in the last 10 years or so that the word power has almost become a bad word. Do you understand what I'm saying? Doesn't it seem like almost every news story is dominated by the question of who has power and who doesn't? Who's abusing power? Who's being abused by it? Who's oppressing with their power and who's being oppressed by it? And man, the injustices in our world are severe and intense. But if you were to just come on the scene within the last 10 years, I think you would be led to believe that the problem is not sinful humans. The problem is what? Power. Power. Which is really fascinating because Jesus promises 
his disciples, the people who follow him, who trust in him with all their life. Look at this. This is Acts chapter one, verse eight. This is what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I know it says Romans 16. That's a typo on my fault. That's Acts chapter one, verse eight. He says to those who believe in him, you'll receive what? Power. And if power is a bad word, Jesus is not going to give it to us. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. All right. So that sets us up for this first story, Acts chapter 19, verse 1, story of the baptism. So let's throw that up there on the screen. Let's talk about the baptism here and what it has to do with power. Paul shows up in Ephesus and he meets 12 guys. And they have been baptized, apparently, into the baptism of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? All right. John the Baptist was a, a forerunner of Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus, baptizing people in the desert in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. So Paul comes across these guys who he has never met before. And upon meeting them, the first thing he says is, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you get the Holy Spirit when you believed? In other words, you clearly don't have something that you need. He could just sense it. And they're like, the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit? We've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And he says, well, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord means master. So what he's saying is, when you put your life under the power of Jesus, then that power is going to come through you. It's going to be with you. It's going to live in you. And it's going to work through you, that's what you're lacking. So I've shown this chart before. Let's throw this chart up on the screen. I've shown it a couple of times when you got a good thing, you got to keep coming back to it. You know, the Christian life is really two 90 degree turns that you make again and again throughout your life. The first is repentance. I'm going to turn from myself. That's what we mean by repentant, to be repentant. I'm going to turn from myself. And apparently these guys have done step one. They have turned from themselves. What they have not done is believe that Jesus is the master. And so his power is not over their life yet. When they're baptized under or into the name of the Lord, Master Jesus, his power fills them. And in the very next verses, look at this, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. And so the evidence is suddenly, you guys have what you did not have. And it's clear to everyone around because that power is working through your life and you are doing what you were not doing just a second ago. All right, the story is about power. Brings us to story two, the sermon. Paul immediately after this, starting in verse eight, he starts to preach. And we're told two things about his preaching. He preaches boldly, and he preaches persuasively. Now, let me just remind you about Paul. Paul, by his own admission, was not a good preacher. It wasn't his gift. And yet he preaches in Ephesus so boldly and persuasively for a time, a short time, that by the end of his time there, everyone, we're told, Jew and Greek in that province of Asia, had heard the word of the Lord. Everybody. And by chapter, or, or, sorry, chapter 19, verse 20, just a few verses down there, look at this. 
In this way, the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. And this is from a guy who couldn't preach. I think about that story in Exodus. You know this story when God calls Moses. He's at the burning bush and he tells Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses reminds God what clearly God had forgotten. Hey God, I don't know if you know, I can't talk too good. And God says, hush, I'm gonna tell you exactly what to say. I'm gonna speak through you and you're gonna be good. Like it's gonna work out. Why? My power, not yours, not your good preaching. I talk with my preaching apprentices when I bring out a preaching apprentice in the summer about this, this lesson. Man, this is such a trap for preachers and I have fallen into it. Can I be really honest with you? It feels good when after my sermon, you come up to me, you rush up to me. And you say, that was so good. You are amazing. Um, Lindsay is so lucky. Okay. What I talk about with my preaching apprentices is that the desire and goal is not to hear that was so good, but God is so good. Right, that what you have said has shown me so clearly the power of God and what Paul, this guy who couldn't preach too good, does because God's power is working through him is cause the name and worth and value of the Lord in that world to grow in power. Think about that. All right, then that brings us to verse 11. Look at this. This is just a weird Weird story. I'm going to read it to you. We're going to throw up the first words of, this, of these two verses up on the screen here behind me. This is the handkerchief story. But let me read the whole thing. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Did you know that was in your Bible? Doesn't this sound like um, something you'd see on Discovery Channel, like Shroud of Turin kind of thing or something, and some holy relic that people are traveling to, and you're like, I thought that wasn't really us, okay? Paul apparently wipes his nose, his forehead, with a handkerchief, and somebody's like, here, Paul, let me hold that for you. They give it to him, and they run off to their sick mom, and they throw this gross handkerchief on their mom, and she's better. She's healed. Or, and this relates to the next story where this demon overpowers seven men. For Paul, all it takes is a handkerchief he touched and demons flee from it. Can you believe that? Okay, the most important words though, this is a strange story. The most important words in those two verses, throw it back up on the screen one more time, are the first ones. God did extraordinary miracles. How? Through Paul. Whose power is it working through the handkerchiefs? God's power. And because Paul has placed himself under the power of Jesus Christ, under the power of God the Father, the promise is coming true. That power is with him, and it's working through him in miraculous ways. Okay. Let's, th let's think about this together for a second power. 
let me compare with you two philosophers for a second. Don't do this often. I think it'll make sense here in a moment. The first of those is a guy named Nietzsche. It's actually pronounced Nietzsche, but that sounds like a sneeze to me, and I'm not going to keep saying that. So Nietzsche. And he preached what he called the will to power. Have you ever heard this? The will to power. He said that our whole lives are dominated by that feeling we started with, I don't have what I need. And so we spend the rest of our life trying to gain power so that we can assert ourselves over people and problems so that we will always have what we need. Will to power. This other guy, Schopenhauer, he said, no, we're not dominated by the will to power. We're just dominated by the will to live. And what he meant was, as long as we have everything we need, as long as we're safe and secure and our basic needs are met, we don't bother anybody else. We don't try to get more power. We're just content if we have what we need. We just want to survive. And Nietzsche just thought that was a bunch of hogwash. He said, the proof is, this is the proof he gave. I'm going to give another one in a moment. He said, the proof is that rich people, who have everything they could possibly need will risk great sums of money in investments to make more money that they don't need. He said, the point is we will risk safety and security. What for? For power. That's what we'll do. Okay, you don't, that one made you uncomfortable. We'll do another one. You would never do this. Okay. Uh, let me give you another example of the will to power over the will to live. Have you seen those stories about people on the edge of the Grand Canyon who will try to take a selfie on the very edge? And they'll creep up to the very edge, and every year dozens of people fall off the Grand Canyon and die because of why? A selfie. Okay, Nietzsche's point would be that you are willing to risk safety for more power. And in our world, power is often measured by social influence. How many likes do you get? And so you will gladly risk your well-being, your life, for more power. The, the point is that we are haunted by that Nietzsche's making. We hate, we detest the feeling that we don't have the power we need in our life. We can't stand that feeling. In the late 80s, there was a Canadian marathoner, Brian Maxwell. He set a goal for a marathon. He was an accomplished marathon runner. He wanted to run this thing fast. He reached the end of the marathon, crosses the finish line, collapses, did not meet his goal. Feels terrible. His body just feels like it's falling apart. He's just distraught with himself for not reaching his goal. And he makes this resolution. I am never going to feel like that again. And so he creates, does anybody know? the power bar, the first energy bar. Do you remember how bad power bars were? Anybody ever eat those? They were terrible. But he created that. And this is what the marketing is on their website. Power bar, born from boundaries and built for breakthroughs. What's the point? We want power we don't have. We hate the feeling we don't have what we need. And we want the power we don't have. Right. Okay. <clears throat> this is the moment in the sermon where I could say, that's a bad impulse. Uh, but I don't think it is. 
Uh, in some ways, I think God has hardwired us that way so that we would long for him and long for what he offers. I mean, why would you long for God in a world where you have everything you need? Why would you? But God has hardwired us in such a way. He has designed our lives in such a way so that again and again we will come up headlong into those boundaries and feel like we cannot break through them. So, you know, in Galatians 5, there what's, there's what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many of you ever looked at that list? These are the fruits of the Spirit, the things the Spirit can give you. Have you ever looked at that list and said, I don't have all of these? I'll tell you what, I'm a parent. I'm a preacher, a husband, a parent. By far, being a parent is the hardest one of those. The fourth on that list, love, joy, peace, patience. Man, that's hard. Can any of your parents resonate with that? Man, so many times I feel like I am up against it and I do not have the patience my kids deserve. And if I didn't have the promise that the Holy Spirit can give to me, what I do not have just innately, I wasn't just born with the DNA to be patient. Ask my mom. I wasn't born with that. If I didn't believe that the Spirit could give me what I don't have, why would I come to Jesus? Why would I come to him to give me what only he can give me? But I'll tell you, I pray every single morning that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would give me the patience I don't always have. And I believe he will, and he can. I believe he will, and he can. I mean, look, let me remind you about prayer. Maybe you remember this from James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why? Because they've said magic words? No, because they're opening up a channel for the power of God through that prayer to flow into and through their lives. It's an appeal to a power they don't have that only God only God does. Man, I'll tell you, that is such good news. Is that good news? Is that good news? I mean, this summer, I'll end with this story and then point you to a verse here. This summer, we lost power at our house twice in those storms. Remember that? Anybody else lose power this summer? And uh, we had to empty out our whole fridge and refrigerator or and freezer twice. Twice. And you would think, Eric, didn't you learn your lesson the first time? The thing is, when you lose power, what do you keep telling yourself the whole time? It's about to come back on. It's about to come back on. Some friends of ours here in East Memphis, they were without power for 111 hours, okay? Four and a half days, 111 hours. The whole time they were calling MLGW. Have you gotten to ours yet? Are you coming? When the truck showed up to fix their power problem, you know how long it took them to fix it? 14 minutes. 14 minutes. You know how terrible that is to feel like you don't have the power you need? It feels awful. And we, unlike Nietzsche, Nietzsche thought we want power to dominate others. I don't think that's why most of us want power. We just want power because life is hard. And we got things in our life that we don't have what we need to deal with. Well, look at this with me. I'm gonna end with this 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us, you and me, 
everything we need, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What if you this week, what if you wrote it on your bathroom mirror? What if you put it on a sticky note? What if you were on your, put it on your dashboard of your car? What if you talked about it with your kids each morning at the breakfast table? These simple words, I have everything I need. In Jesus Christ, I have everything I need. Let me pray over you. God, you have given us all that we need. So we rejoice in your son, Jesus Christ, our savior and redeemer who fills us with his spirit and power. In him, we do have truly, God, all we need. And we pray in his name, amen.